This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. this guest back on the show you have heard her here where she made her urban view debut you've heard her several times on the karen hunter show where she just be blowing up the internets the interwebs all the spaces she is professor coretha mitchell she's an award-winning author literary historian cultural critic and professional development expert her research focuses on african-american literature as well as violence in united states history and contemporary culture and she examines how texts both written and performed help target families and communities survive and thrive. Her first book, Living with Lynching, won awards from the American Theater and Drama Society. Her second monograph, From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture, debuted in August 2020. It was named a Best Book of 2020 by Ms. Magazine and Black Perspectives. She has edited, I'm so excited about this, she has edited Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, the first book-length autobiography of a formerly enslaved African-American woman, as well as Francis E.W. Harper's 1892 novel, Iola Leroy. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Professor yeah. Mitchell, it is such a pleasure. I mean, I could keep reading and reading and read. Literally, I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling. Oh, now I've reached the bottom. You do a lot of the things. You've got all the receipts. I think the audience is convinced. Welcome back to the show, sis. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It is great to be back with you. It's been more than a year since I was last here, but of course- Has it been that long? It has. April 2022. Um, no way. Yeah. And but, you know, I listen to you all the time. So over the course of the year, I've heard you shout me out a couple of times and it's always yes. delightful. <laughs> um, congratulations on becoming a Delta. Um, Thank you so and, much. Yeah. It's just yes, my D9 that. sister. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I can't no, believe no, it's oh, over yeah. here. It, no, I, I, I didn't say Delta. I said my D9 sister. I do my yeah. research, Dr. Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. And I didn't realize it's been a year. I think because I listened to you on Karen's show that it has felt to me like you have been in my own head. So that we're, we're yeah. going to have to, it won't be a year before the next time we ask you to come back. Let me tell you that right now. Uh, so, but it is good to have you here. And I'm so excited about this project. I want to talk about the project first. And then I want to ask you about an organization that we both know and respect that has done some interesting new things in the philanthropic community and environment. But I want to, first, before we get to that, I want to talk about uh, your take on your edits of the incidents in the life of a slave girl for folks in the audience who may not be familiar with this absolutely amazing work what is this piece the incidents in the life of slave girl who is harriet jacobs and how have you been able to frame it in a way that revives it in the imagination for all of us who absolutely love 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 this autobiography oh my god thank you so much for even asking about that that project yeah. is very close to my heart um so incidents in the life of a slave girl was published in 1861 and as you said it's the first book length autobiography by a formerly enslaved african-american woman harriet jacobs was born in edenton north carolina and mm. she was part of the reason incidents is so famous is because when she was hiding in Edenton, North Carolina, to keep her children from being used as a bludgeon against her, she was hiding in the crawl space above her grandmother's uh, storage shed. And that six months and 11 
so, I'm sorry, six years and 11 months in that crawl space is part of the part of her story that made it hard to believe. And there were scholars who questioned the validity of this being a true story. And they insisted that it was actually fiction written by the editor, Lydia Maria Child. Um, mm. And so there was a historian, Jean Fagan Yellen, who did a lot of archival research beginning in the 1980s to verify that Harriet Jacobs' story was in fact true. But this story for me, the reason that I was so committed to doing a scholarly edition of it is that so many of the scholarly editions of it are just a very bare bones, introduction mm. because it's such an important text and it speaks for itself and so you just have this bare bones introduction and then the narrative but Lurie, what harriet jacobs helps us understand is what does it mean to be a black woman living in a society that takes your sexual violation as a necessary mm. non-event what does that Ooh. mean that is what mm. she wait wait wait, 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 wait. Mm. Mm -mm. i just needed to sit <laughs> Say that again, please, because you, you said it so quick, it sliced my soul into pieces. Say that one more time, please. And this is the thing. I, I want to frame it by saying so many of us are familiar with Frederick Douglass telling us the story of his Aunt Hester. When he watched his Aunt Hester be whipped for going to mm. see a man that she was in love with, when he watched that happen, he started to understand just how brutalizing slavery is. But what Harriet... Mm. Jacobs does is she speaks as the black woman whose bodily autonomy is a threat. So I see incidents in the life of a slave girl as the articulation of what it means to live in a society that treats your sexual violation as a necessary non-event. Because the nation is building its wealth on your reproductive capacity, it treats your violation as just a necessary thing that is just not an event. Mm. Whew. I, I knew we needed to have this conversation. I, I gotta be honest with you, when you describe the six years in the crawl space, I'm having a conversation with my daughter and this is playing out in the background of my head as we're talking and we're talking about Anne Frank and the diary of Anne Frank and how this is a family who during the Nazi era was living uh, you know, in a secret hideaway space and like an attic space. And, and there's a book that she wants to get, the girl behind the wall that talks about people who are living in the walls in order to avoid capture by the Nazis. And, and these stories really feature prominently in our understanding understanding of the Holocaust. But Harriet Jacobs in the 1800s spends six years in a crawl space. And now think a crawl space is not describing a glorious second floor. It's not the penthouse room. It's a teeny small, it's a cell. It's a yeah. cell that she occupies so that she is able to secure a sense of freedom for herself while keeping her family safe. And the fact that you were able to identify that at the heart of it, she is fighting against this recognition that or fighting against a reality that says your sexual violation is a necessary part of our American project, a necessary yeah. part of this effort of enslavement. That to me, I think really speaks volumes as to the ways that black women today continue to be to have our pain factored in as just a reasonable cost of doing business when it comes to per perpetuating the American project. Absolutely. And what's so stunning, right? I mean, she's in this crawl space for six years, 11 months, almost seven years. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to think about how she uses that cell, as you say, a prison cell, as you say, 
in order to create a sense of freedom that isn't available to her otherwise. So she chooses to go to this cell and, um, and, and endure everything. There's frostbite. There's an infestation of bugs. Um, she has hallucinations at one point. Like it is not an easy road. And for her mm. to have survived that, come out of it somehow with her sanity intact. But mm. then Laurie, write about it as beautifully as she writes about it. That's why yes. I was so committed to doing this edition because the edition I'm doing has a thorough introduction. Then I reproduce her narrative with heavy footnotes so that you understand all of the implications of what she is putting on wow. the table and telling her life story. And then I give you six appendices with historical and other documents so that you can understand some of the connections to what you just read from Harriet Jacobs directly. But the other thing that you make me want to share is that the introduction that I wrote, <laughs> the very first line of it is, can you get pregnant? Mm. And the reason I wanted to start there to your point about our current historical moment with the Supreme Court doing the foolishness it's doing is yes. that I need us as readers to bring our body to the experience of encountering Harriet Jacobs' life story. I do not believe that you can be intellectually rigorous, Larie, without understanding how the way you move in the world in your body inflects mm. your ability to think and think critically. So I began by asking, can you get pregnant? Because if you think about your embodiment as you encounter Harriet Jacobs' story, I think we have a better chance of you activating in our current historical moment to make this place more decent for more people. Mm. Girl, you be saying all the words and then I be having to think, but it's supposed to be, I can't handle silence on the radio, but I need, I need to think, I need to, need to, I need to process. Cause this, I remember reading this book when I was in college, this is a part of my Africana studies curriculum and just being completely mind blown that mm -hmm. these were the experiences that she's able to recount. When she talks about the, the, the fraud, the infestation, all of the things that really just were happenstance just part of the experience of fleeing enslavement while staying rooted in enslavement fleeing this awful horrific plantation while staying on the plant escaping yeah. capture and and creating an entire hallucin not a hallucination a, a, a almost a, a mythological story about where you're at throwing your your captors off your scent from yes. the attic from the crawl space making the master think that she's here she's there she's everywhere this is a masterful woman who willfully went into that cell to preserve her own life and the life of her family. Absolutely, mm. right? I mean, you're highlighting the fact that she writes letters and makes it seem like she's already in the North. And that yeah. is what keeps her so-called owner completely uh, confused. But what is important about you bringing that up, Laurie, is that it highlights how much, when she writes her narrative, when she writes her life story, she is highlighting the community it takes to mm. pull off what she pulls off. So it is Peter, the sailor, that helps her to do those letters. He gets a newspaper, gives her some addresses she can use from the North, right? So the fact that she's highlighting the fact that it takes community. Peter, the sailor, it takes even white women who are enslavers who hide her for certain periods of time. But the other thing you make me wanna highlight here by bringing this up, is that she also highlights the black men 
that mm. she loves and that love her. Yes. I am so clear that she highlights that when the United States treats her sexual violation as a necessary non-event, her sexual violation by white men, part of what sustains her sanity is her connection and love to black men. Her father, mm. she starts her narrative off by highlighting the fact that her father is a carpenter who was skilled. Then when she's entering that crawl space that we're talking about, who's the person who makes it? Her uncle. Her right. uncle is another skilled carpenter. And what I want readers to see is how much she's showing that the love that black men, black men show for her in mm. concrete ways is part of how she saves her sanity in that crawl space for six years and 11 months. So to mm. me, that's part of the power and beauty of how she tells her life story, Larie. Wow. I cannot wait to get my hands on your rendition because this is, I, I need to be taught this again. I need to say, and when you said footnotes, honey, I love me a good set of footnotes. The book, the I've written, I wrote a book about black hair, Afro state of mind, memories of a nappy headed black, black girl. My favorite part almost was the footnotes. Cause you, you, in the footnotes, you get to explain, you get to make connections, you get to have a little bit of editorialization. So you already had me at Harriet Jacobs, but then you have the footnotes and I know it's going to be the footnotes that are, are reflecting your brain power on the page. I'm really excited about this. Is this available now? Is this coming? How do people get their hands on it? When, when is it available to the public? Thank you. It is available now as an ebook. Um, so mm. if you look up Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl and Caretha Mitchell, the edition that I have edited will come up. It is available as an ebook now. The paper copies will be mailing out in early June. And since wow. you're talking about footnotes, let's be clear, you are in the footnotes. I have, um, you know, I told Wait, you about- Wait, you mean those... who's in the footnotes? You, Larie Daniel Favors. <laughs> are you serious? I'm very serious. Because... How is that? Okay, so I, I told you I have the six appendices with historical documents. One of the historical documents that I reproduce is the Emancipation Proclamation. And it is listening to you over the years that reframe my understanding of that as the way that wow. Abraham Lincoln is asserting power over jurisdictions that he does not have actual authority over. And yes. So I footnote you on that. I give it the framework from you, and then I footnote you on that as well. So yes, you are in this edition. That is insane. I you have made my my day. <laughs> that might have made my entire y'all. I'm in Dr. Mitchell's book. I listen. That that gives me a lot of joy um, because I think you're dope, and, and this book is amazing. And this story was one of the pivotal stories that I remember all these many years later. I can now I guess say decades technically uh, from being at Penn State and grappling with these thoughts and these issues and and comparing what I was learning about her to all the things I had learned about the Holocaust, where people also had to live in walls and in crawl spaces and never having heard her story before that it was just absolutely amazing i'm so grateful and then i, I want to now have like more conversation about this however i we actually asked you to come back to talk about an advocacy issue that you are also related to that i don't think has really gotten a lot of attention at all talk with us about the ford fellows program and, and then actually before we end i want to come back and i find out where people can get the book i'm sure if it's available as an ebook it's available at all independent booksellers all of your personal black owned bookstores and the big folks too. Is that correct, Dr. Mitchell? That's absolutely correct. Okay, thank you for that. Let's talk about the Ford Fellows Program, what it is and why you and other participants in this program are raising the alarm about the current state of affairs. 
Yeah, thank you so much for even having some interest in this. Um, you know, the becoming a Ford Fellow changed my life. And so um, that happened for me in 2004 when I won the dissertation fellowship. And then in 2007, I won a postdoctoral fellowship. But um, I was able to start going to the conference of Ford Fellows beginning in 2005. And I have attended every single year since then. So Ford really changed my life and is part of the reason why I am a professor today, but more importantly, part of the reason why I am happy in my profession. Wow. To understand what the Ford is, I guess part of what we should say is that um, it was 1962 that the Ford Fellows, um, the Ford Foundation's um, philanthropic dollars um, started to be much more structured around a fellowships program. I use 1962 as the date simply because that's the date when I believe the National Academies of Science started to um, administer it. So the Ford mm. Foundation gives the money, the National Academies was the administrator. And I use that date because in 2012, which was a meeting I was able to participate in, 2012 is when we celebrated 50 years of Ford Foundation Fellows. And we had this lovely 50th anniversary convening. Uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates was our keynote and all of that kind wow. of stuff. So that was 2012. The other reason why 2012 was important is because that was the first year that we also had um, a convening of senior Ford Fellows. So people who hmm. had had their PhD for at least seven years and or had tenure, right? We started to formulate because the Ford Fellows program really facilitates early career people. So there's a pre-doctoral category where you get three years of funding so that you can get a master's and PhD. And then from that point on, really the Ford Fellows program is about those early career scholars. So the reason hmm. we were looking to do a senior Ford Fellows Program is because once you got tenure or once you had had your PhD for a while, no one was really trying to mentor you. So we started this organization wow. in order to mentor people who are much older. Well, one of the things that happens in 2012 when we celebrated that 50th anniversary is Darren Walker, as the new president of the Ford Foundation, um, made an announcement about a recommitment of another decade of funding. And little oh. did we know, little did we know, that in 2022, at the mark of that decade, the announcement would be made that the Ford Foundation is no longer going to fund the Ford Fellows Program. So I want to be precise. Wow. You've seen me tweeting about the Ford Foundation's divestment from the fellowships program. My wording is precise because I'm not mm. trying to say that the Ford Foundation isn't continuing to, to fund things that are trying to make the United States less hostile for more people. They've just decided right. that they're not going to invest in this fellows program that changed my life. Wow. Was there a reason provided for, for what that meant? It, it, you know, I, I'm seeing, I'm looking on their website and I've been looking for, for some press statements to speak to this. Have they spoken as to what the rationale behind this was? Yeah. So the announcement came and I remember it so well because, you know, I had put together um, an informational program that I believe was scheduled for something like September 23rd, 2022. Mm. And um, the announcement that this would be discontinued happened exactly a week before my event. 
Um, and the reasoning wow. was that um, they are investing in more on the ground kind of things. So things that are about, huh. you know, climate justice, um, you know, things that are that they consider to be more impactful because they are more on the ground. And the way mm. that I've thought about it, Larie, is simply that it's their money. So they choose where they're gonna put yeah. it. <laughs> and they decided yeah. they're gonna stop putting it uh, with this PhD focus kind of thing and be more on the ground, more organic. Mm. And do, do we have a, I mean, I would imagine we have a need for on the ground funding. It feels like, well, I want climate justice. That's a good thing. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying we can do that on the ground thing, but we also should not abandon this, what feels like a pipeline of sorts that's going to allow for the type of scholarship that you and other folks like yourself are able to produce. Am I understanding that portion correctly? Yeah, and I love that term pipeline, right? Because that's what I mean when I say it changed my life, right? So mm. to, um, to have this funding at the dissertation level and then to be able to go into a tenure track position at Ohio State University in 2005 to go through the ranks, um, you know, earn tenure in 2011, then be a senior scholar at that 2012 meeting that I just told you about. And honestly, since 2011, when I got tenure, I have also been a Ford Fellows Regional Liaison. What that means is that wow. I have been the connection point to anyone who wins a Ford Foundation Fellowship, whether they're at the pre-doctoral, dissertation, or postdoctoral level. If they are in Ohio, western part of Pennsylvania, or West Virginia, I am their automatic mentor in that region. And I've been mm. doing that work for more than a decade. And that is, you're exactly right, right, to call it a pipeline. But what I do want to say is this, there is no question that I will continue to do the kinds of things that I'm doing. And I would say that part of the reason why you're even being interested in this topic touched me so much is because part of what we have done is since that 2012 meeting where we created um, more of a conference that was about the senior fellows, we have since been able to become an independent 4013C, is that what it's called? 501. Oh, 501. Yeah, 501C3. Yeah, yeah. So we are called the Society of Senior Ford Fellows. And we are an independent um, organization. And the, the groundwork for this has been several years in the making. And we've been independent from the start. So when they announced this divestment from the fellowships program, we were already moving in the direction that we're moving. And we're just going wow. to move in that direction. So I do want to make the distinction, right? There's nothing I can do to make the Ford Foundation invest in us again as a fellowships program. What we are doing now is just trying to make sure that the senior society exists long enough so that those who are are part of this last cohort, right? That's the other thing I've done, right? I've been on the mm. review panel that has decided who's going to get the, the last crops of um, these fellowships. And so I served on that um, review panel cycle in 2023. In March, we made those decisions. They got announced shortly thereafter. So this last class of fellows has been announced. And what we're trying to do as the Society of Senior Ford Fellows is be around long enough that by the time they are at that position, we will exist so that we can mm. be there. 
you know, there's this thing that happens when you're engaged with philanthropy. And, and you know, we've had Darren Walker on this show before. He was actually one of my professors at NYU uh, oh. for a community development class. Yeah, it's so weird. I was like, oh my God, I know him when he became wow. a professor or we became the head of, of Ford. And, you know, we've had him on the show before. We know that there are, we've had a number of philanthropic leaders on the show. Interestingly, a lot of them are black uh, in this time, you know, in the post, you know, George Floyd era and not that he came in as a result of that, but we've seen a lot of black organize or organizations now being led by black people in the philanthropic space and there's always this inherent tension about being able to sustain existing programs when you want to make a decision uh, to move in another direction and then those who often are the prime beneficiaries are sort of left holding the well what had happened like we were doing so well yeah. things were going so well so the the fact that your organization uh, the society of senior ford fellows had the foresight to already begin the process of, of developing this independent space for you i think that is amazing and it really speaks to your ability to, to be keyed into what's happening and what's at risk talk with us a bit about and when we only have just a moment but I'd love to hear your insights as to what this experience has shown you about the the benefits of philanthropy and and some of the challenges that come when we particularly those of us coming from marginalized communities look to philanthropy to be sort of a bridge into another a pipeline into another space and another era what are some of the the key takeaways for you that this experience has, has allowed you to, to realize as a result of what's happened my goodness Laurie, you are just so freaking brilliant you oh always, girl, you. you always go to the <laughs> core you. you always go to the mm. core of the issue and what I'm going to tell you is that it's two things. Number one, I'm always clear that it is our success that makes us a target. Yes. A discontinuation is not because we did anything wrong. It's because you were doing everything right. And so mm -hmm. all the more reason to attack you. I mean, let's back up to, I don't know, 2008 when um you know the one of the attacks on affirmative action happens and the ford fellows program expands so that um white people can be uh ford fellows not just the uh marginalized not just the groups like puerto ricans and african americans and indigenous populations not just those who have been excluded from higher education for a sustained extreme amount of time, not just those people, but that it should be open to anyone who will say that they're going to use diversity in their teaching and research as PhDs. So let's go back to 2008 wow. when that happened, right? Wow. But, and now we're in this moment where anything like affirmative action is even more under attack. So what I, <laughs> the issue that you make me go to is how when you are successful and you are not the archetypal citizen, that cisgender straight white man that everything is supposed to be for, then your mm. success will make you a target. And we could mark 2008 as the beginning of that sustained attack wow. that maybe we could say this is about. I'm not gonna say it, I'm representing myself right now. I'm not gonna represent myself right now as the president-elect of the Society of Senior Four Fellows. I'm just talking as Caritha. Mm. That 2008 moment is one of those moments. But the other thing your question makes me think about is in so many ways, no matter what we do, if we're part of the marginalized community, we can be cast as being to blame. So mm. when this announcement was made in 2022, I heard so many people say, this is what you get 
for investing in, you know, trying to be a part of the academy or relying on uh, relying on philanthropy. What I'm trying to say is, if we weren't making space for ourselves in higher education in these standardized traditional ways, we would be to blame because we weren't taking full advantage of our rights. And if we do totally independent things, then we're to blame yeah. for the things we don't yeah. like. If you're part of a marginalized group, whatever you do, somebody can cast it as it's your fault that you're suffering now. And so when I try to think about your question, what is my takeaway? My takeaway is that the United States is going to continue to be the United States. And the truth is every arena is worth going into and doing the good that you can. That mm -hmm. is how I feel about it. So yeah. as devastating as the divestment is to me, it's not that we did anything wrong and we just have to continue to work in every arena that we can see ourselves making a difference. I don't criticize somebody else's way of doing it completely independently, just like I don't want to criticize their way of doing it within the system, right? So right. that is that that's where I'll leave it. <laughs> this is difficult. It's difficult, Caritha, because we're in a situation where so many needs go unmet. And when there is an institutional response that gives a lifeline, we take the lifeline. And, and unfortunately, because of slavery, because of everything Harriet Jacobs was going through for that six years and 11 months in that crawl space, we are in a position where, it, I hate to say damned if you do, damned if you don't, because I think you're freed if you do, freed if you don't, so long as you're operating in your purpose and in alignment with how that is supposed to walk out for you. But it, there's so much hurt that can be involved when you are striving to do better, to take advantage of these opportunities, and then it feels like they are being taken from you because, as you said, you have been successful at doing the thing and the more I, um, how do I say this? Because now I'm, I'm taking off my serious XM hat. I'm putting on my nonprofit executive director hat. The more I engage with the philanthropic community, because I, I remember I was a, I was general counsel. I was a, I was on the ground doing the programs and the activism. Now I'm in, I'm seeing the philanthropic community from a whole different light. And I'm like, my God, we in trouble. <laughs> like we yeah. have a lot we have to figure out, but I'm comforted by the fact that black communities are the largest philanthropic groups. We are of the groups that give the most, even though we don't often think about ourselves as philanthropies, we are some of the most philanthropically minded people. And I'm grateful for that because it means that there are solutions here. And if we see these, these outside community supports as just a temporary thing, you know, you have no reason not to think it was going to be long term. It'd been around since the early, you know, since before the 60s. So it, there's a lot of lessons that we have yet to learn about how to as successfully as we possibly can navigate this space. And these types of experiences, I think, are important to talk about, uh, not to, to hold up a, you know, a light or to bash anyone or anything, but just to say, this is how these things can play out. And we have to be aware. I'm so grateful uh, that your group had the foresight to already begin establishing an independent space where you could continue your operations, because that says to me that so long as we continue that foresight, we'll navigate the hurts that come with the, the, pulling back of, of investment and support. But as long as we have that foresight and we're able to continue providing services as best we can for ourselves, that to me feels like the Kuji Chakalia moment yeah. in this space. But I can see the hurt in yours, right? I can see that there is, there's hurt there. And so that I wanna have, be able to have space where we can deal with the humanity of it all, the frustration of it all, while recognizing the brilliance of being able to see what's written, written on the wall and then planning accordingly. Dr. Karitha Mitchell, I think you're amazing. It will not be a year before you hear from Shayla again. 
Um, I'm going to let Karen know. I'm sorry. I know you be having her on. We'll just coordinate so she's not on at the same day. But we're going to have to make Dr. Mitchell a regular part of these conversations. I love the way your brain works and, and how you're able to articulate the thoughts that sometimes get stuck in my head. Uh, and so I, I wait for you to say them or tweet them or, or do put them out into the universe. How can people follow you and get connected with you and the research that you're doing and all the, the amazing projects that you have your hands in? Thank you so much. Um, so I am very easy to find on Twitter. I'm at Prof Corey, P-R-O-F-K-O-R-I. I'm also at Prof Corey in Nubia and everywhere else. Um, and uh, I always keep a decent uh, updated thing on my website, CaritaMitchell.com. Yeah, she is a Nubian folks. So y'all, y'all who are in the chat, y'all, y'all get to know her. As someone in the Nubian chat is also pointing out that 2008 happened to be the year that President Obama was elected. The fear of advancement and excellence is real. I never quote directly the names of people in Nubia. I did that once and realized I ain't trying to put their government name out there because they, you know, they spoke. So thank you to the Nubian who did that. Dr. Mitchell, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Looking forward to seeing you again in about a month. We'll see. Excellent. <laughs> thank you. She is Professor Coretha Mitchell. Y'all need to know her. You need to know her. You'll probably hear her on Karen's show at some point.